Congratulations! You found it! The most inappropriate book club you never knew you were missing! Starring the original book divas Martha Steele and Vonnie Golden, and also featuring Megan Runyon, YA superfan, Pat Greiner, she has the head of an English major and the heart of a sci fi nerd. These people are passionate about books, maybe a little too passionate. Plotting world domination one book at a time, they are three book girls. There's a name for those buttons that you stick on your Crocs. They're called gibbets. Gibbets? Gibbets. J-I-B-B-I-T. I have a Harry Styles gibbet. That sounds yeah. dirty. <laughs> it's too close to giblets, which is what my sister <laughs> calls the dick and balls. The giblets. That gives a whole new uh, meaning to giblet gravy at Christmas time. <laughs> hey, y'all want some giblet gravy? It's kind of mm-hmm. crunchy. Oh. No, I meant because your sister calls it dick and balls. Dick and balls. Yeah. yeah, I, I know. Giblets. Yeah, that's, like that's, that's not that's a kind what, of gravy that I want at Thanksgiving. Same. That's what Monica could have said about her dress. It's not, it's just giblet gravy. oh a little giblet gravy on the blue dress yeah Mm. (laughs) the fact that like there's people on this planet that like don't know that reference because they're gen z makes me sad (laughs) yeah you said monica and the first thing i thought was monica and friends i was like she make giblet gravy on friends i didn't go there first until she said on her dress Yeah, Monica Lewinsky, for those of you who don't understand the reference. Just Google the blue dress or don't. (laughs) I wonder if she still has it. You know, I think she does. I think I feel like either that or either that or uh, or it's in the Smithsonian. It probably could be. Or, I mean, somewhere. she probably saved it for retirement. I mean, she could she could auction that bitch off and make yeah. some money. Well, if it was a good dress, why wouldn't you wear it or wash it and wear it again? She'd have to have it cleaned. Listen, just and because it would you got a the- little quote-unquote giblet gravy on something doesn't mean that it doesn't wash out. <laughs> that was the case. I never would have had clothes when I was younger. <laughs> you know what? There was this, there was this girl in Gillette. That was kind of kind of a slut, and my roommate—I don't remember if my roommate didn't like her or if it was one of the guy roommates that was talking about her. You know, she's such a slut that the other night she was at the bar, and she wasn't. And all of a sudden, I see something drip, and it got on her shoes, and it was cum on her shoes, like it, like it. Dri- she wasn't wearing any underwear, so it dripped and got. Oh. Jesus, that's disgusting. That's being a little bit too promiscuous. Yep. Yeah. Uh, that's just gross. It is Listen, gross. Listen, if you're going to have bathroom sex, wipe that shit off before you go back to the bar. Yeah, don't let it drip on your pumps, man. That's just gross. <laughs> I think they might have been suede, too. Yeah, I was going to say, um, her blue suede shoes would be would be uh, totally ruined. Yeah, they would be. You don't want to get any giblet gravy on your Chuck Norris's. Yeah. Never use the same thing for for. You just call them Chuck Norris's, by the way. (laughs) What did you say, Pat? 
I've never used the same stuff for shoe polish that you use for hair product. Megan, <laughs> she didn't catch it. No, I didn't no. say it again. You say have it to again. know that there's something about Mary. Yeah, I guess I do. Mary. I do. No, but what did you just call your those shoes? Chuck Taylors? You said Chuck Norris. <laughs> did I say oh. Chuck Norris? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> You also Those probably are don't shoes want with attitude. No. <laughs> Chuck Norris is such a dick. Anyway, I can't believe I said his name on the podcast. And perfectly feathered hair that never moves. Yep. Yes. I, he, I'm sure he uses a lot of hair product. Either that or it's a wig. It's probably a wig. It's well, hair piece. It's hair piece. This is hair piece right there. It's my hair piece. Who is that a terrible impression of? I don't know. I just remember, <laughs> remember being in some some movie or something, and some Vladimir like Putin. Like, what was I don't kind of like Borat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's oh, my we're beautiful hairpiece. Yeah, we're time traveling in case something really insane happens this week, and we don't talk about it it's because we don't know what happened yet. Yeah, we're gonna, the next. We're doing two. We did two episodes today, and then two on the seventeenth because it's that time of year again when everybody's busy doing shit, and some of us will be out of town, and so instead of just taking time off, we do this for you. We double up. I read two books in a week. That's oh a my lot god, me. Megan read two books. <laughs> That's a lot. I read four this week. Okay, but that's normal for you. <laughs> Two for me is a lot. Poor Megan had to give up some of her social life for reading. I, I had to give up some of my Netflix streaming. Oh, fewer <laughs> Christmas movies, more Christmas books. Yes. I don't feel a bit sorry for you. <laughs> I almost so, got suckered so into trying to finish Walking Dead because everybody was talking about like the series finale. And I was like, do I want to go back and catch up on the four seasons I haven't watched? And I was like, no, because I quit watching it for a reason. <laughs> yeah, don't go back. It's not worth it. I just was like waiting for TikTok to like somebody to just tell me what happened. I was like, someone give me spoilers. When I don't want them, I find them everywhere. When I want them, none of you assholes post them. <laughs> well, let's see. Um, none of the major characters die. So there's that. Okay, good. That's all I really needed to know. Well, D- I knew Daryl and Carol I- are getting their own. I think it's Daryl and Carol. Carol. Yeah, they're, they're getting, getting a spinoff. And so I knew they couldn't kill Daryl. And I Maggie, knew he was sick. Maggie, and Negan are going to have a spinoff. And Rick and Michonne are going to have a spinoff. So they're three spinoffs. Yeah. Too many. Yeah, I kind of thought some of the some of the secondary characters would maybe bite it, but they did not. I stopped watching after Jesus left. That's a while. I know. Was- I like Tom Payne and I was sad. <laughs> and I was like, I'm done. This was the last person I cared about on this show. <laughs> Except for Daryl. And I was like, someone will tell me if something happens to Daryl. No, no, Daryl was originally a throwaway character and he did such a great job that they, they kept him yeah. in. Yeah. Because... The world would have rioted. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Daryl. I feel like mm-hmm. if I had just kept my cable, I I pay the same now <laughs> in streaming services. But there's so much stuff that's like exclusive online. Like Criminal Minds is exclusively on Paramount Plus. Like it's not on the regular like CBS. Well, eventually channel. it's all gonna go to that. Yeah. Sort of like eventually, you know, local local TV and local radio are doomed, sadly. 
I still listen to my radio. I'll be retired by the time it totally goes away because pretty soon the car, the new cars will come with internet connectivity built into them so that you can just choose your I mean they already do but I mean yeah. without you having to pay a subscription fee which is what yeah. which is the reason that XM and Sirius were not as successful as they should have been because people yeah. will will not pay. Yeah. But you're still going to need local weather and traffic info. That's true. <laughs> not really. Not traffic. The apps, traffic. Uh, the apps have everything. I mean, but I don't, you're going to need, uh, if you live someplace like this, you need the weather. And you need yeah. the local emergency stuff. I need Cameron Buckholtz to tell me if there's traffic on my way home. Just because I like hearing him say his name. I'm Cameron Buckholtz. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You know, I feel kind of bad for all the little kids out there who every year their parents drag them to sit on a sketchy guy's lap wearing a suit and a false beard and then expect them to smile for the freaking camera hey they're not all fake beards good santas have real beards have you ever known anybody that plays a mall santa that isn't fucking sketchy i've never known anyone to play a mall santa Oh, actually, Calvin. Calvin. I know another guy here in Casper who, I don't know if he's does mall Santas, but he does like Christmas parties yeah. and stuff. For yeah. Me. And he, yeah, he's a good guy. See, and has an authentic crazy. beard. Yeah, see, <laughs> Calvin had an authentic beard, but he was kind of a weird dude, too. He was nice, but I don't know if I'd want my kids sitting on his lap. I don't know. It just, it feels weird to me. That we tell them constantly, don't talk to strangers, don't you, this and that, you know, and then you hand your baby over to some random dude and expect them not to freak out. My niece, the reason yes, I'm bringing this up is my niece, um, my goddaughter, Megan, just had a baby, Emma, and she's, I mean, she's probably the most photographed baby in the history of the world because Megan is one of those people who is on social media constantly. And the baby, of course, is in everything. And that everything is cutesy. And they were complaining that, you know, that Emma would not smile for her Santa pictures. And when I, I know I'm a horrible person, but when I took Dylan to sit on Santa's lap, I was proud that he cried. And I took pictures of him <laughs> screaming and trying to get away from the strange man. <laughs> In fact, I still have that picture of him looking like he's been kidnapped. And it's awesome. I don't, I guess I was never scared of Santa because my uncle looked like santa like he had an all white oh. beard mm. and and he was not like big and like santa he was like a bean pole he was like six foot tall and tiny but like i guess i just i don't remember my mom ever telling me that i was like afraid of santa but if you look at pictures of me with my uncle ron he looks like santa <laughs> so uh. like i probably never really was like what is happening <laughs> like, it's just weird the expectation we put on our kids for stuff like that and like I don't blame little kids for freaking out on those big, you know, like Disney characters and and Easter bunnies. I mean, Easter, there are some they're creepy Easter bunnies. There I are know. some really creepy Easter bunnies. Easter bunnies can go creepy real quick. It's just like the the scale of these characters is just. I mean, it's scary as hell. And these, you know, kids are so little and. Yeah, we're all excited for them. And I still remember the, the look on Dylan's face when we went to Universal Studios. And we walked up to 
I think he was about five. And we walked up to the area where SpongeBob was supposed to be. And the initial look on his face was of terror <laughs> because SpongeBob <laughs> was huge. Huge. And Patrick was huge. And there's this little boy going, <laughs> Whoa. I didn't realize they were that big. <laughs> At least they're living creatures. I grew up very close to Hershey Park in Pennsylvania. It's like a giant candy bar. Gigantic candy bars. I mean, you're oh. standing there and somebody taps you on the shoulder. You turn around and it's an eight foot tall crackle bar. And you're going, going yep. what did I take this morning? I didn't <laughs> yeah. think I ingested <laughs> anything that would lead to this. <laughs> Mom, I think you need to check those mushrooms that were in that omelet. <laughs> I always love, though, the little, like, the toddler little ones at Disney, like, when they see Pooh and they're like, oh, my God, it's like the most giant Pooh bear. And they just, like, run up to him because they're, like, it they're so excited. It depends the kid, though. I mean, the scale yeah. is is really, to some kids, terrifying. Yeah. Even if well, yeah, it is two plushy. feet tall. Even if it is plushy. Yeah. I mean, you're two feet tall and you're used to carrying Pooh. And now, like, Pooh Bear is, like, six foot tall. Hello there, little boy. <laughs> Pooh Bear doesn't talk. So you say. I don't think he does. He might now, though. Mickey can talk now. So maybe he can. But the ones you see at the park don't talk. No, mm-hmm. they don't. Yeah. No. Mickey can now, though. Some Probably of the Mickey some guy from Florida saying, hey, mm-hmm. what are you doing over there, kid? Oh, that's more New York. Why do they sound like New York? Yeah, sorry. It's like, is that Florida? <laughs> sorry. I don't. Do I you don't... know who I always thought was creepy was the Easter Bunny on the Santa Claus, the Tim Allen Santa Claus movies. Yes. That Easter Bunny is creepy as fuck. I'm sorry, it is. And when he's like all flirty with Mrs. Claus's mom in the third one, yes. that's even creepier. I am so excited for the Santa Claus, the Santa Clauses, like the Disney Plus series, mm-hmm. which I know people are hating on all over the place on the internet. And I'm like, I don't care. Tim Allen is back as the San- as Santa Claus, and no one's going to fuck this up. Why are <laughs> like, they hating on it? I because love he's those a Trumper. Movies. Well, yeah, it's because he's a Trump. And they're like, he's waging war on Christmas. Like, he's saying there's a war on Christmas. I was like, can't you just fucking enjoy a Christmas movie? <laughs> I mean, it's Tim Allen, it's not political. In the Santa Claus. No. It's a Christmas movie. I, I I'm not even wa- thinking about Trump when I'm watching this. No. And I'm on, it's a series, the new one. And I'm on, I'm one episode behind. I have to watch it. It's once um, again that how do we separate the character from the individual? Yes. It's, yeah. It's, I mean, that it's an ongoing. Yes. Agree. Argument with everything. I mean, depending on wh- what, where you place your loyalties. My philosophy on the TV side of it is I've already paid the man because I paid for my Disney Plus subscription. I've so I might as well man. watch it. Listen, there's there's a line like um who's that one dude that anti-Semite? Oh Kanye. Kanye. Okay, now that's uh, a line. I wouldn't watch anything with no, him in it. I agree. But just because of somebody's political beliefs, even if I don't agree with it. I'm not going to not watch him in a movie if he's a great actor. Yeah. It's kind of like, have you ever worked with somebody who you like as a person, but you don't like as a coworker? Yeah, same all the time. Thing. Yeah, it's same the same thing. thing. Hmm. But all, all the Gen Zers are like, it's Tim Allen. And he's he's saying there's a war on Christmas. And, and I was like, shut up and watch the fucking show. Just <laughs> well, shut up. And that's funny because, you know, it really, Santa Claus is more... 
I mean, people who are like those war on Christmas people, I mean, that's don't take the Christ out of Christmas people, right? Right. Okay, so Santa Claus isn't really on the same team as them anyway. No. Well, I think so they're, saying Allen- that, they're saying that he's one of those, like, who's saying, like, we're... Yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. Christmas. That's yes. what I'm saying is that yeah. if he were really one of those people, if he was that hardcore, he wouldn't play Santa Claus. Right. Yeah. When That's it's cute, his daughter, his daughter plays his daughter in the show. And so they were like interviewing her and she was like, I never realized how much it meant to people for him to be in that suit until we did this show and watching everyone on set react to him being back in like the Santa Claus suit and being Santa Claus like for this movie. She's like, I never really understood it until I saw it happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, like he's he's like he's Santa Claus. <laughs> yeah. See, I need to watch it yeah. because I totally Googled TVGuy.com to find out when the Santa Claus movies were playing on Freeform, on Freeform so that yep. I could watch them. Because those are, I love those movies. You know, everybody's, got their, everybody's got their traditions at Christmas time that they feel like. I'm, yes. For me, it's Christmas vacation. Oh, yeah. Now, Cousin sure. Eddie is very problematic in real life. Yeah. So, I mean, you could look at that. For See? me, it's Christmas story. Christmas and, story. And, oh, yeah. yeah. There's supposed to be a sequel or a, a There movie. is. Yeah. It I've, is. Seen the pre- yeah. I've seen the previews of it. Christmas all over. Story Christmas. It's where Ralphie's grown up. And yeah. I watched and, it. Yeah. Um, oh, it's, it's a good? little it's a little cheesy, but I liked it. There were parts of it that I was like, really, guys? Well, what's but it on? What's it on? I think is it on Peacock or HBO Max? Mm, I don't know, because that's not one I ever I never was a Christmas story Christmas movie person, so I've never looked to see We watch the crap out of that every year. That one and Christmas Vacation are the two that we most watch. I mean, I used to watch the Peanuts one when Dylan was little. And, it's on HBO and when Max. I was little. Oh, okay. HBO Max. It's on um Hulu, Amazon Prime. It's on all the paid channels then, huh? Practically. And I get I love White Christmas. It's mm. oldie but goodie. White Christmas. I get, I get teary every time they An angel the general in there and the snow starts falling. And they oh, open. Yeah. That's a, a wonderful life. A wonderful life. That's yeah, the, I'm thinking I love that life. one, too. Oh. I, know yeah. what, I know which one Pat's talking about. Yeah. <clears throat> the Bing Crosby, watched, yeah. Danny Kaye yeah. one. Yeah. yeah. But I'm sorry. All of these new Christmas songs that are out there, some of them are pretty good. But there's nothing like Bing Crosby singing... Christmas. Don't say yeah. that because you know what? That's my biggest pet peeve of I the love world. Those old and I'm Christmas just telling you that carols. as a person who plays songs on the radio, there is nothing <laughs> worse than playing the same Christmas songs every fucking year from the beginning of time to the end of time. And that's all you get. You get rocking around the Christmas tree. You get Feliz Navidad. You get Bing Crosby's White Christmas, you get Brenda fucking K or whatever her name is. Brenda, somebody. Brenda Lee. Brenda Lee. Mariah. Rocking around the Christmas tree. No, yeah. wait. Now, Mariah is the new generation. Yeah. And what I always hoped would happen is that you would get maybe one or two new Christmas songs a year, and then you could put them all in so that instead of playing the same fucking There's song, a ton of... 
song. There's a ton of artists that have Christmas yeah, songs. Yeah, but you know yeah, what? They don't repeat them that much because I listen to, to they the never... station that plays all of Christmas. Like I was listening yeah. to it when I was driving back from Kansas and they play, it's mostly new artists. They yeah. don't play the old stuff mm-hmm. very much. Well, that's what we end up playing. Oh. I like the old stuff because that's always what we played like when, when I was little. So it just kind of makes me and, think. And of- that's why we play those. Yeah. But it's like, you know, my I, favorite. I get frustrated because it's like, come on. Elvis Presley, Blue Christmas. Come on. Oh, you have to like that one. Christmas. No, I, I do not like Blue Christmas, but the one I hate most is the John Lennon Christmas song. Yeah, I hate that I agree. one. I, no, that I don't one? like that either. I, I absolutely hate Felice Navidad. If I never hear that song again. I want to wish you a Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas. <laughs> Why did I fucking say that? Because you bitches are going to like. Feliz Navidad. Shut up. Espero un año felicidad. I love that song. <laughs> That's why you know we have to play it right there. That's why. <laughs> I saw an interview a week or two ago. It was Chelsea Handler. Oh, God. And she was talking. I forget who it was, but she had gone to lunch with some other some other famous woman, mm-hmm. I think is the journalist. And unbeknownst to her, they were joining at lunch. Woody Allen and uh, what's her name? Sue Lynn or whatever her name Sue, is. Yeah. And she said, I had no idea we were having lunch with them. And she said, so I waited. I just kind of sat through lunch most of the time. And she said, so we hit a lull in the conversation. And I looked at Woody Allen and said, so how did you two meet? <laughs> Chelsea, <laughs> I might have been like, "Gots to go." Yeah, I yeah, I I struggle with that one because I still love his movies. God, his movies are funny. See, and, <laughs> and I can't give up watching. Once them. again, it's it's sort of like separating J.K. Rowling from Harry Potter. From Harry Potter, you know, because yep. I wear my Harry Potter sweatshirt right now. <laughs> That's some brilliance right there that you can't. There isn't any sign or whisper of that kind of a person in that literature yeah i mean there isn't nobody's been able to point to something oh yep right there she's a you know anti-trans person because she writes that you know what i'm saying yeah. it's not in her well, and, like, and like people talked about they said when all that started coming out that the harry potter books taught an entire generation to stand up and fight yes, and they're like exactly. you literally you literally told us our whole lives to stand up and fight against you. Like you raised us in these books to fight against the person you are now. Like what the fuck did you think was going to happen? <laughs> like, like you didn't think this through. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Anyway, can we just go back to the Let's... time where there was like no social media and we could just enjoy our celebrities and not know everything that goes on in their that lives. That would be kind of yeah. nice. Actually. I would, <laughs> I would enjoy the fact that like, I would love to not know some things about people. Just let me enjoy some of it without knowing too much. All right. I, I'm i excited the- because I'm to the episode where I think my favorite character comes back because, you know, the Internet has no chill when things are happening. And my I think my favorite character comes back. But the last shot of the last episode I watched is like a hand on Tim Allen's shoulder. And, you know, it's one of the elves because time has stopped. Oh, yeah. And then, like, I haven't gotten to watch it, but I'm dying because I know who it's going to be. But I, like, don't want to admit that I know who it's going to be. I'm denying. Is it going to be Bernard? <laughs> Probably. I love Bernard. Probably. Maybe. <laughs> 
Maybe. Well, anyway, see we- now I want to watch it. I'm sad I don't have Disney. <laughs> Got to get that Disney Plus. I'm sure if you ask Megan, she'd invite you over and you could drink hot chocolate and watch it together. <laughs> there you go. I know that we're not doing Christmas books this week. That'll be next week. Next. Yes. Yeah. Winter so on- books, not Christmas. Books. Well, sorry, winter books. True. Winter will be yeah. next week. Seasonal. Seasonal, seasonal books. Like seasonal affective disorder, only fun. Yeah. Oh, Instead is- of sad, it's sab. <laughs> <laughs> seasonal Next affective week. books. Exactly. <laughs> but today. I'll tell you though, that ahead. seasonal affective disorder is in full effect because the sun hasn't been out here in Oklahoma in a week. I know, right? I know. It's been so foggy and rainy and stormy and yep. okay, crazy weather. What kind of book are you going to bring to the table today? Oh, horribly sad. Oh, oh good. of course. We'll give us all to nightmares. go with our seasonal affective disorder. Awesome. Yeah, this is going to make it. me depressed for a whole other reason. And you should know, Martha, because you're the one who told me about this book. Oh, Uh-oh. thank you. You're blaming me. Thank for you it. for the trauma that I have now from oh. reading this book. I obviously gave it to you because I knew I'd never read it. Oh, you would never read this book. It's a nonfiction World War II book. Oh, gosh. Yeah, no. Dude. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) So I read The Rape of Nanking. Oh, my God. By Iris Chang. Why are you reading this in a happy season? I know, right? (laughs) Listen, I like to get really, really down and then watch her watch a Christmas movie and get really, really up. It's my own form of bipolarism. <laughs> this is a Shona L and Bonnie book for damn sure. Yes. Oh, yes. This is definitely a 40 to 70 year old man book. Oh, okay. Bring us the trauma. Most of us maybe probably know some of this trauma because history. You know, they don't talk about what Japan did to China a lot in history or a lot when whenever you hear about the horrors of world war ii what do you immediately think the holocaust germany and it's very overlooked that the japanese did horrible horrible things to china that's what this book is about nanking is the was the capital of china it still might be the capital of china i don't know i have to look that up not (laughs) Not great with current history. <laughs> That's Beijing now. Beijing. Yeah. Okay. Um, and this is December of 1937. And the Japanese army swept in and took over Nanking. Hold on a second. I can hear Echo. I never can hear her and I can hear her this time. Echo's sawing logs. Yep. By the way, you have a new notification. Do you want to hear it? Echo dismiss. Because <laughs> I said her name. <laughs> That's funny. It I was talking funny. about song logs. <laughs> yeah, Echo is definitely making some noise over here. She needs a CPAP machine. <laughs> <laughs> CPAP for dogs. <laughs> CPAP. Oh! <C-pop. laughs> that was good. The Japanese army swept into Nanking and um, just basically annihilated the city. A lot of people were evacuated, um, about maybe half the city. And we're talking about a city of like a million people. So about 500,000 people fled, but the people who did not flee 
were tortured, killed, raped, and just, like I said, they just basically annihilated the whole city. This book is told kind of from three perspectives. At first, they tell the story from the perspective of the Japanese soldiers, because a lot of these soldiers, you know, they're not programmed to be so, I don't know, how would you say it? Like robotic, ruthless, and just, you know, kill. But the army would do these killing contests where they would just line up citizens and basically whatever soldier killed the most of them won the contest Um, just to deprogram their brain to make it so that it was okay in their minds to just kill these people, which was just horrific to read about that they would even do this to these young Japanese boys and make them just deprogram them into just killing machines. Um, And it also tells the story from the perspective of the citizens who were living in Nanking and, you know, witnessed and were tortured and killed themselves. And it was told from the perspective of the Europeans who were in Nanking for different things, who witnessed and actually helped save almost 300,000 Chinese from being tortured and killed. One of the most ironic parts of this book, I think, is that one of the people, one of the Europeans who rescued a lot of Chinese and did not let the Japanese touch them was um, the representative for the Nazi party who was in Nanking. Oh my gosh. He started letting people take refuge onto his compound. He found them food to eat. I can't remember if he had like tents or what exactly it was for them to sleep. And he would not allow the Japanese to come in. There was also a woman who was over there. I want to say she was like a professor or something. And she let uh, Chinese people take refuge in the school. Um, Unfortunately, the Japanese weren't as afraid of her. So there would be raids on the school where the Japanese would come in and snatch people, the Chinese from the school. But she did everything that she could to try to stop it. And another one was a surgeon who was over there working at a Red Cross hospital. And the Japanese didn't even care that it was a hospital or Red Cross hospital. They were just going in and taking over these hospitals and he did everything that he could to try to prevent hit. Um, even when he was the only surgeon in the whole hospital, he worked basically 24 hours a day doing surgery, trying to save injured people, citizens, just to hear their stories. It makes you feel very insignificant when you hear about just the heroic stuff that these people did to try to help the Chinese citizens when they weren't even part of China. They weren't even citizens of the country themselves. Another one of the amazingly sad parts of this book is that the Japanese government denies that the incident even happened or they tried to play it down. So the actual counts of how many people died 
has never really been determined. The Japanese government tries to say that it's only, you know, 20 or 30,000 people, but that's still a shit ton of people. That's a shit ton of people. But when you look at what the estimated amount is by outside sources, it's more like 400,000 people. Yeah. And it wasn't even that they just killed them. They chopped off their heads. Oh my gosh. They would kill a pregnant woman and then cut her baby out of her and then chop the baby's head off. Jeez. The fetus. I mean, this is one of the most gruesome events that's ever happened in history. I mean, they would, they would not even rape the women. They would go into a house and make the father rape the daughter. Oh, and if he wouldn't, he would, they would kill him. And most of the time they would kill him anyways. After they would rape women in the daylight, in the middle of the street with people just standing around watching. And they didn't care if you were 12 years old or 70. Women were not safe any age. I mean, it was just brutal. The men, after they killed them, sometimes they would chop off their penis and put it in their mouth. Mm. This book is not for the squeamish. Definitely not for the squeamish. It, It was very horrific. But it's something that happened in history. And, you know, you need to know your history so that you don't repeat it. The fact that a lot of these Japanese soldiers got away with it and were never even charged with war crimes after doing some of the horrendous things that they did, it's just, it's very sad. Mm-hmm. It's horrible. Jesus, talk about bring the room down, Lonnie. Right? <laughs> Merry Christmas, everybody. Mm. <laughs> Megan, what were you saying? I interrupted you. I'm sorry. It's one of the saddest things that happened in history. Oh, yeah. I oh. mean, it, like you said, it's one of the the things that is not taught enough. Because like you said, the, most people think of the European theater, but the, the Japanese were vicious in the yeah. Pacific. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Another thing that they talked about in this book is POWs, Japanese POWs. And, um, sorry. Jesus Christ. By the way, I just did. I tapped her and she did that. Longtime listeners need to know I can't cut all the snoring out. (laughs) It's part of the show. (laughs) It's the ambiance that is my house all the time. I can't remember the numbers, but uh, like only like one in four POWs survived the Japanese uh, prisoner of war camps. And a lot of times they would just kill him because they didn't want to feed him. Am I remembering correctly? It wasn't John McCain. Yeah. POW in Vietnam. Am I remembering that right? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. And didn't is it is he the one that came back with the list of names like he learned everybody's names or was that somebody different? There was somebody in one of them that was in the Pacific who had made a list as he met other like as they would talk through the walls. And so when he came home, he like rattled them all off so that they would know who was where. And I can't remember if it was John McCain. I feel the name. The, I feel it like it was John been. McCain. But I think I it was. I think I heard that. Remembering. But I, I don't know. Let me get my dad on speed dial real quick. <laughs> I can probably Google it. But I, I just remember that story of if it wasn't him, it was somebody else that came home and 
like as soon as he got home, he was like, I need paper like right now because I do not want to forget a single one of these names. <laughs> like, And he had them um, like memorized to know who was there and if they were dead or alive or like. Yeah, there's rough. a tie in with a with an author, a, a really good author, too, from that uh, J.G. Ballard. If you've ever read, he's a sci fi author and he as a child was in one of those inter his parent his family was british they were living in shanghai and his family was put in an internment oh. camp by the japanese army they made a movie out of it called empire of the sun it was a oh yeah a steven spielberg movie yep. it was, it was uh-huh. where christian bale got his start he played ballard as a little boy yeah mm. But I know they don't talk about it in history lessons or anything because I didn't even know anything about that until I read uh, The Rising Sun mm-hmm. that I, I reviewed it on the podcast a while back. But it, it's crazy. It's insane. So if you um, want to read a very traumatizing, brutal, <laughs> nonfiction, bloody, horrible, <laughs> The Rape of Nanking by Iris Chang. Oof. Come on, Megan. Give us some of that Christmas romance. I got you. I'm going to bring us even, back up. Even I need that right now. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Martha needs a romance. That is I got you. I got book. you. <laughs> I got you. All right. Uh, so this week I am reviewing Mistletoe and Mr. Right by Sarah Morgenthaler. Can I change my mind? <laughs> nope. No <laughs> take back. So what I, this is actually like the second in a series, but I don't think you have to read them in order because the characters probably go together, but it doesn't really matter Um, because I kind of looked it up because like, I feel like I missed something, (laughs) but I think it's just set in the same universe. Um, So we have Lana or Lana, however you want to pronounce it. And she is the heir apparent to a huge real estate company and they've gone into this small town in alaska in moose springs and are trying to kind of turn the town into like a ski area like they've gone in and bought up businesses and are trying to really make this town thrive and it's kind of her escape like when she wants to escape the world of like real estate this is where she always has gone since she was a kid and there is a resort there that her family's trying to buy, that they're trying to buy out this other resort and like make the town a big town. And of course we have the local Rick and the town has worked really hard to not be a tourist town. They deal with the resort that's there, but some of the businesses make it very clear, like we don't want tourists in here, so go somewhere else, <laughs> uh, which doesn't always work out very well when you need to pay bills. So Lana, or Lana, I forget how they pronounced it, is basically trying to win this town over and like get to build these condos to help make the town better and all this stuff. And she definitely is into Rick and Rick is definitely into her. There's not as much will they, won't they in this book as because really early on, they're both like, hey, we should just have a Christmas fling. Like you, they go into it thinking like, we both like each other. And she's like, well, you know, I won't stay here because I have to go travel for my, with this company. I have to go, you know, check on other clients and other things. And he's like, it's fine. It's fine. So a lot of the book they're together. Like there's almost the whole book. They're already together and 
running around. And there's also a Christmas moose. And this Christmas moose has declared war on the Christmas decorations in Moose Springs. Every Christmas, the Christmas moose reappears, but no one's really seen the Christmas moose. They just know it has to be a moose because there's tracks. Goes and just demolishes the town's decorations. Like, we'll, like, rip the lights down. We'll, like, take out the inflatable things. The moose is not having Christmas. And Lana's like, you know, the best way to win the town over would be to, to trap the Christmas moose and get him relocated because he's tearing up the town. And so a little bit of it is her trying to go out with her friend Zoe, who has moved to the town because Zoe fell in love with Graham and has stayed in the town. And they're out in like ghillie suits and like traipsing through the woods with like tranquilizer guns trying to catch the Christmas moose. So it's kind of entertaining. At one point, she grazes Rick with the tranquilizer. <laughs> and so there's like a whole section of him just being completely doped out of his mind from the tranquilizer. And it was just like grazed his arm. So it's just kind of funny. He's not in any danger. <laughs> but it it was really cute. And it shows that struggle that so many small towns feel of like, what? how much do we let big, big America, so to speak? Not big box, but big America into a town without us losing our identity versus if we keep them out, what happens to our town? Do we all have to leave because we can't sustain our own town? Uh, how are we going to make money? And the relationship between uh, Lana and Rick is really one of just truly like a partnership. Like he's there for her. She's kind of closed off. She has some trust issues and he just keeps telling her like, oh, you're not getting rid of me that easy. And they go through the whole thing of, her cousin is trying to like steal her spot in the company. So Silas comes in and is like, no, we don't need all this crap. Why are we fighting for this town? We're deal like, this is costing us so much money. If we just, you know, walk away, we're only going to lose like a billion dollars. And they're like, a billion dollars is a lot. <laughs> and Silas just doesn't really think so. <laughs> so there's a little back and forth with her family. He's raising his nephew, Diego. And Diego's a very typical teenager <laughs> and just lives off cereal and gets himself in a little bit of trouble and have to sort that out but it's just kind of cute and i did like that it wasn't just a oh do they secretly like each other in the town trying to conspire like pretty early on they're both like yeah we should get it on like we <laughs> we should just do this uh and it's just fun to watch their relationship and watch her try to win the town over and then the town trying to decide are we gonna let her win us over and there is a little rough patch towards the end of the book that i won't spoil but it was cute. It was a cute read. I actually tried to read it last year and I just really couldn't get into it. So I had a, I just put it on the shelf, put it back on the shelf and circled back to it this year. And it was, it was cute. And that is Mistletoe and Mr. Wright by Sarah Morgenthaler. Awesome. Are we all now out of? Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Stop making me look, stop, stop making me look back at it. (laughs) (sighs) Pat. Let's well, get, let's don't get, get too far out of that because my book has a rape in it too. Oh. Oh. <laughs> this is a roller coaster of an episode. Yes, it is. Damn. Um, I read The Roundhouse by Louise Erdrich. And this is a book that is the middle one in a trilogy, but it's not the sort of trilogy where you have to read the books in order or even have to read. You don't have to read all three of them is what I'm saying. 
the trilogy is called the Justice Trilogy. They're loosely connected by themes and they're all set in the same fictional town of Pluto, North Dakota. By the but way, than- when I re-listened to the podcast, I totally missed your Pluto joke when we were recording and I laughed out loud. <laughs> <laughs> Woo. I was listening to it and I was like, how did I miss that the first time? <laughs> the action at the heart of this book is the narrator and the main character, Joe, is a 13-year-old boy and his mother is raped. He and his father see her driving home, speeding home. Uh, they go to check on her. She's bloody. She smells like gasoline. She's obviously been beaten. And she just takes to her bed. Well, they take her to the hospital first. And when she's released from the hospital, she crawls into bed and doesn't want to come out for weeks on end. She's not willing to talk about the incident at all. And Joe decides that he has the responsibility to find out what happened and who did this to his mother. So the majority of the book is Joe's attempt to solve this crime. He and a couple of his other young teenage friends go out, they search the area where they believe this happened, which is what the roundhouse refers to. There was an old roundhouse, a a railroad repair facility on the reservation. And so they search the area, they find what they think may be a couple of clues. They suspect various people in there community. At one point, they find a a six pack of beer out there and they go, well, the priest drinks this kind of beer. So we got to find out if there drinks beer. We got to find out if this is the kind he drinks. And so they go down that rabbit hole for a while. But that's not the man who committed the rape. They also, Joe, uh, not all of them, but just Joe, finds a doll floating in the water of a nearby lake. And he pulls this doll out and opens it up. And there's $40,000 stuffed inside it. He shows it to the wife of an uncle of his. And she says, she's very smart about it. She's like, we tell nobody. They go to a town several miles away from the reservation, far enough away that they're not well known. And she has him open a bunch of different bank accounts and they put the money here and there and and divide it up into like 10 different bank accounts. And she said, this is gonna be your college money. And just keep these passbooks, put them away. Don't tell anybody about them. Joe and his friends, spend most of the summer trying to figure out this crime. Meanwhile, we are also introduced to a woman named Linda, who is a white woman who was adopted by an Indian family as an infant because there were twins born, Linda and her brother Larkin. And Linda was born with some physical deformities and the parents just didn't want to deal with that. So they gave that baby away. Larkin is absolutely an asshole, a totally worthless human being, but he needs a kidney transplant to stay alive. And so who does he find but his long estranged twin sister and pressures her to give him a kidney? I know this sounds like it doesn't fit into the plot, but there is a tie-in. There's a very good tie-in with that. A lot of what this book is about is about the way the justice system is really, really messed up as it applies to reservations and the people who live on them. Something that I was not aware of was that a white person who commits a crime on an Indian reservation cannot be prosecuted by reservation legal authorities. And that has a big, big function in the plot of this book. Joe's father, the husband of the the woman who was raped, is a tribal judge 
And one of the things that Joe learns, he's always thought, oh, my father is a judge and he's a source of wisdom and, and justice for our people. But in fact, his father doesn't get to deal with any very weighty issues at all because the way that the legal system has allotted power to the Indian judges, they deal with minor petty thefts, minor, very minor, maybe vandalism, but they can't prosecute whites who come onto the reservation and commit crimes. A lot of the book also has to do another topic that's that's really very timely now is the fact that indigenous women are the victims of sexual assault at an appallingly high rate and very, very few recourses are available to them, particularly if their attacker is white. So it's not a depressing book, but it's a serious book. Joe is dealing with very serious issues and there are some serious repercussions that come out for the various characters. But again, as with all of these uh, Erdrich books that I've taken to reading lately, the characterization and the, the evocation of the community as a whole is absolutely wonderful. You feel like you know and are living right there amongst these people. So it's a book that's very serious. I've read all three of the the Justice Trilogy books now. I've talked about one a couple of weeks ago. The third one is La Rose, which Martha has reviewed in a past episode. Mm -hmm. Episode 80, I looked at it. If anybody wants to check that out. Yeah, you can go back and catch Martha's uh, review of that one. They're just extraordinarily well done books. In fact, this one won the National Book Award. It came out, I think, in 2012 and was a winner for that. Well-deserved. So that is The Roundhouse by Louise Erdrich. Awesome. I don't think I've read that one. I think, well, I think I might have tried to read that one. Because after I read La Rose, I think I kind of went back and it was just too depressing for me. I'm pretty sure I DNF'd <laughs> that one. Okay. I can't be the only one with a happy book today. The look on Martha's face says, yes, you can. <laughs> Sorry. Keith, where are you? <laughs> it's almost the last, this is the last chance for me to review this book. And that's the only reason I'm doing it today. Mm -hmm. All right. The book that I chose this week is called Babel, an arcane history by R.F. Kuang, K-U-A-N-G. Is that how you'd pronounce that? Kuang? Probably. This book is technically a fantasy novel, which is why I avoided it for so long, but it kept popping up on so many of the end of the year lists that I just felt like I was missing out on something by not trying to read it. So yes, I caved in to the pressure and decided to give it a try. And the main reason that I decided to read it was because in the description, it mentions one of the books that I really liked, which was Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Mm. Susanna Clarke which I absolutely loved, but it was a doorstop. And this one follows suit. It's a doorstop. It was a huge book, but it also was a not my kind of book in that it was, it read a lot like historical fiction. The time, for example, is 1828. Robin Swift, orphaned by cholera in Canton, is brought to London by the mysterious Professor Lovell where he trains in all these different languages to go on to work as a translator slash magician of sorts, because this is a fantasy. So she takes the town of Oxford 
and adds a little something something to try to make it into a fantasy. Well, therein lies the difficulty. It was a brilliantly written book. It was a very good book. It was a compelling book. But it was so light on magic that it made it difficult for me to love it. I got through it, even though I despise historical fiction. I'm not a fan of it at all. It was a good book because the characters were good. Basically, this young man, after having been snatched from his home, living on the docks in Canton, the guy brings him to his house in Oxford and and he treats him so poorly that you just spend the entire time feeling hideously bad for him because the guy doesn't treat him like he would a child. I mean, he treats him just horribly. And you get the idea fairly early on that somehow this is his child, that he had been with the mother in China and that he then took the child and, and came back over. And this had happened before and that he actually has a half-brother. But he was never treated like a son. He was treated like a ward. For example, one time the kid decides to, they go to a bookshop. This is just an example, a scene from the book. He's so excited to be learning and reading and doing all these things. I mean, he's just so in his element that the kid is just joyful. And one day he takes him to a bookshop because he's never been to a bookshop before. And he lets him choose a book. Well, he chooses an adventure story. So they go home and he's got some tutor or something that he has. Well, the kid goes up, he's sitting in the library and he's absolutely engrossed in this fiction story because he's never read one before and he's in it you know and he's he's sitting up there and he loses track of time and all of a sudden the professor bursts through the door and says what the hell's going on you know you your tutor's been sitting down here for an hour what were you doing and he tells him what he was doing and the professor proceeds to beat the life out of him for not being serious about his studies and this kid is like maybe eight So, I mean, it's just, you hate this professor so much. And you feel so bad for this kid. Well, eventually, the kid is old enough and gets accepted to Oxford as a translator. And the tiny bit of magic that you get in there is kind of like being a translator gives you the opportunity to write with silver and you write spells by knowing the translation. I don't know. I didn't get a lot of really concrete information on the way things are done. For one thing, the length of the book was really, and listening to it, those are the other two things. If you're listening to a book like this, it's harder to get all the details. But the details just felt inadequate for the creation of a system of magic. You get the idea that, yes, there is magic and it requires silver And they use very small bits of it occasionally in the book, which is mostly used as a defense against tyranny. Because all of these kids that are the main focus of the book are from other countries. And they've been brought to this area as tools to use for this magic system. So it's a lot about revolution, I guess. So it's very, very political as well, because 
at one point they discover this plot that these professors are trying to talk the British government into attacking China. And so politics, politics, blah, blah, blah. Not my thing at all. But having said all of that, it was still a pretty dang good book. And it was written very, very well. So if you're a fan of historical fiction and you kind of have that background anyway, I think you might enjoy the book. And especially if you don't care an awful lot about the magic, you might enjoy it. Because it was really kind of a fun journey and the story was well told. Not for me, but still, I gave it four stars because it was really such a brilliant story in itself. And that's called Babel by R.F. Quang. Hmm. Interessante. Somebody who likes historical fiction might enjoy it. And obviously, an awful lot of people did did like it because it really... I think it's a good choice reading. Yeah, it really got a lot of attention. It got nominated for a lot of things. It really was good, but for somebody who was looking for a fantasy novel, it just really didn't have enough of that to like justify the length of the book because it was really long. I want to, let me see, how long was that sucker? Uh, I guess it was only 545 pages, but still, it felt. Still a hefty book. Yeah, it felt really, really long. Yeah. It's not Cassandra Clare territory where it's literally a thousand pages, but it's close. No, but I mean, there, like I said, there wasn't a lot of time spent explaining the magic portions of the world. I mean, you, you know that it's used in everyday things and they kind right. of, it kind of skims across the, that stuff. But for me, it just didn't, I gotcha. think that could have been enhanced quite a little bit to make me feel more like I was in a magic world versus I was in England in 1828 and there was just a little magic thrown in for flavor. All right, so now we're back to Santa Claus. Mommy was kissing Santa Claus consensually. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm thinking. Yeah. Although yeah. he is a man in power. So there might have been <laughs> some coercion there. Might be some coercion. Subtle coercion. But who doesn't like a hefty man with a beard? In uniform. In- yeah, <laughs> in uniform. That just seals the deal for you the beard no i would make him <laughs> shave are santa fantasies called fantasies no <laughs> maybe that's why depression so high at christmas is because women don't get their fantasies fulfilled from mm. santa suits more guys should really have a santa suit just for you know christmas emergencies <laughs> <laughs> and then it could be christmas in july yeah. <laughs> and june and April and March <laughs> and May. <laughs> oh, Santa! You have such you a got big bag of goodies. You have such a big sack. <laughs> Ew! <laughs> Megan's vomiting in the background. I'm fine. You talk about your weird Santa fetishes. <laughs> well, I mean, Santa does have everything. He wears he wears a uniform. He's outdoorsy. He's giving. So why would you not want to have a fantasy about Santa? He obviously doesn't care if you're a little curvy because, I mean, obviously. Uh-huh. See, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of getting on board with this now. He yeah. always has cookies and hot chocolate in stock. I know. Yeah, but he comes to every house in the world in one night. 
there's going to be a lot of satisfaction there. <laughs> well, I mean, you just you only have to share them one night a year. So, so the S in STD stands for Santa. We're going to Elf Jail for that one. Now, now let the zinger let the zinger go. His holly berries are a little redder than normal. <laughs> I knew she was wait. I knew she was holding on to one. Oh, God. And that's going to do it for Three Book Girls. God, that's terrible. Can't get enough of Three Book Girls? Check them out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Follow them on TikTok, YouTube, and check out their website at threebookgirls.com. And join the group Three Book Girls Tribe on Facebook. If you really love them, share the podcast with a friend or join them at one of their live events. Three Book Girls, a Steel Trap production.